Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Rabbit. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. We've, we've watched over the past fortnight uh, how the Taliban has accelerated and eventually uh, effectively taken over Afghanistan. Now, not many people have been to Afghanistan or have been embedded with military forces, but my guest for this podcast has been. Karen Middleton is the, the political correspondent for the Saturday paper, but she's also the author of a book called An Unwinnable War, Australia in Afghanistan, published by Melbourne University Press. Karen joins me to offer some insights on what uh, she saw while she was in, in Afghanistan, uh, embedded with people and the things that she's hearing right now from contacts in Afghanistan. Uh, Karen, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Uh, look, it, it, there've been a, it's been a fairly momentous and possibly probably stressful period uh, for anyone looking at Afghanistan. Um, can we take you, but before we go into what's just happened, when did you first go into Afghanistan to, to report uh, our involvement? I went first in 2007 um, as an embedded journalist. So the, the Australian Defence Force set up this program of embedding journalists around about that time, and they were taking people initially in groups. I was working for SBS TV as a television correspondent, so I went with um, a cameraman colleague and we were in a group initially then. Um, we were there for probably about three weeks. And then I went back again in 2011, uh, again, um, as a TV correspondent, but this time the Defence Force had changed the way they do things and so it was just myself and the cameraman and we went uh, and had a, a different experience. The first time it was highly managed, very much a PR-driven campaign for the Defence Force. The second time they were actually facilitating the sorts of things that we wanted to go and see. We were able to stay not only at the main base at Tarrancott but also to go out to forward operating bases and to stay with soldiers in regional Uruzgan province, which was incredibly valuable, um, just a huge insight. And that was probably the most uh, intense and educational trip I made. And then we went back again, the same cameraman and I in 2012, by which time the bases were being shut down. It was just a couple of weeks before they were all being pulled back to Tarrancott with a view to, to getting out. So the tempo at each time was different and the experience was different, but the, the combination of all three, I think gave me a little bit of insight, at least um, I wouldn't profess to have the experience of someone who had been posted there, you know, for full time for a longer period, but just little snapshot insights of how things were there. What are the most significant things that you that stay with you from those three trips in terms of the country, its culture, and the contribution that the Australian troops made at that time? What are the things that, when you think about it, what are the things that come back uh, most readily? Well, I guess everything I feel about it um, is is through the prism of... Uh, how I came to be interested in it in the first place, which is that I was uh, a tele uh, sorry a newspaper correspondent covering John Howard's visit to Washington on September 11, 2001, when the terrorist attacks occurred there. So I feel I sort of got a perspective, a very intense perspective from the beginning, and I, I tended to see my uh, visits to Afghanistan through that prism. That I, I tracked how Australia became involved there, which is what led to me writing that book. 
So I was very interested um, as a novice completely in, in terms of any direct military experience in how in the people, in the Australians who were there uh, were working and serving and how they were managing it and in the Afghan people. So I absorbed a lot through those three visits about uh, what, what the Australian soldiers were going through, what the strategic objectives were supposed to be and how much dis disconnect there seemed to be and how, how much they seemed to be changing. So there was a sense at the political level that we had these initial objectives and that then they moved and moved and moved. And I think there was often a sense on the ground that the soldiers, what they were there for may not necessarily have always reflected what our governments were saying they were there for. I was very struck, particularly on the first visit, about the way women lived in Afghanistan and, and young girls. Being female myself, I had some direct experience on the, the, the one or two times we actually went outside the wire um, of, of how women were treated so differently. So there was that experience. There was a direct sense of the incredible tribalism and feudalism of Afghanistan away from the major cities. And I should say my experience was not in major cities. It wasn't in Kabul. I've only ever been to Kabul airport. I haven't actually been to Kabul city. My experience was all in Uruzgan and Kandahar in the regional parts of Afghanistan. So that brought a particular perspective. It was just, just so far from here. I mean, it felt like the middle ages to me when I went there, but just a different lifestyle, the different priorities, the cultural differences. But I had learnt a long time ago with a different cross-cultural experience that you should also look for the similarities and not the differences. And I had some amazing conversations with local people uh, about what their hopes and dreams were for them, for themselves, for their families and for their country. And that was a very, it gave me a lot of insight into the things that, that join us as humanity. And, and even though we bring a different cultural lens, a different faith lens, um, sometimes people have views and ways of living that I find very hard to reconcile that often there's a common humanity underneath it's really important to keep a perspective on so there was a lot of experience very intensely all at once and of course uh, some fear about security and safety and wonder and confusion and concern I suppose about what the future might bring and what we were actually trying to do there and some of those feelings are really coming back in the last 24 hours, given what's happened there now. Now, when, when reporters are embedded with a, uh, a military unit, as you were in 2011, uh, on your own with the cameraman, um, things can get, uh, to use a euphemism, Karen, interesting. <laughs> um, I've monitored the, the Twitter feeds uh, in recent months uh, as things have gotten have gotten um, more pressing and more uh, tense in Afghanistan, and you've, you've received some interesting commentary on social media. It's probably a good opportunity for me to ask you, what are the things that you were privy to that were, yeah, that were extremely dangerous? when you were embedded with the, with the military unit? Um, I think I was quite naive when I first went over and I really had a sudden realisation, which, you know, in reflection seems really naive. When I first got there, we, we, when we first arrived in 2007, we landed at Kandahar Airfield and we got a briefing when we were in the, um, taken to our accommodation, which was a whole lot of, a row of very large sort of marquee style tents with a concrete floor and, filled with bunks and we got 
um, an introduction to security and we were told where the bunker was we had to run to and to take all our belongings that we were going to need. It was freezing cold. We needed body armour. We needed warm clothes and boots and all our recording gear and we had to just run uh, and we would... If, because if something was coming over the wall, uh, we would get a few seconds warning. I remember thinking, hang on, whoa, Nelly, what about, what do you mean something coming over the wall? And it hadn't occurred to me actually, stupidly, that inside the base you weren't actually 100% safe. So there was that realisation then that actually you are under threat just by being there, which was um, seems ridiculous. Uh, but, but at the time was just that very intense experience. And on that trip, uh, we were on a helicopter between... Tarancot and Kandahar when um, we were fired on by a rocket-propelled grenade from the ground. Um, happily, they missed. They they fired and the, the grenade went between our helicopter, which was at the front, and the one behind us, and it was, wasn't spotted by our security accompaniment and Apache that was flying with us either. So it was only because my cameraman colleague was filming out of the back of the Chinook that we saw the flash go past when we reviewed the camera footage on the ground. So that was more of a, wow, that was close afterwards. Um, and then in 2011 and 2012, there were moments where you, you felt very keenly that your safety was at risk. There was a scare when we went to the governor's compound in 2011. Some uh, people with bad ideas spotted us there and there was radio traffic picked up by the ADF that suggested that we were potentially going to be under threat and had to get out of there very quickly. Uh, and we did some foot patrols with soldiers out of uh, the base for Mirawise, forward operating base Mirawise in the Chora Valley where um, there, there was concern. We were just literally walking with soldiers on their regular foot patrol looking for uh, improvised explosive devices and having to watch out for anyone who posed a threat. So there was a gen genuine um, sense of <laughs> heightened awareness of danger. Um, I feel very fortunate that we didn't come under fire and so we didn't see any contact in that re regard either in 2011 or in 2012, but we were certainly on the bases when there were incoming rockets and that uh, siren that sounds with the incoming, incoming screaming at you um, makes you know you're alive and want to stay alive. <laughs> I think if we come to what's happened now uh, on the ground in Afghanistan, things have moved very quickly. Uh, Taliban accelerated gains on the ground. And to some people, it's inexplicable. To others uh, who might recall what happened in Syria and Iraq, a few years back. Um, I'm not sure that there's much difference between a the speed of a pickup truck and a motorcycle in Afghanistan as there was in uh, Iraq and Syria. What are you hearing from the people uh, you talk to in Afghanistan right now in terms of why all this uh, ended up the way it did? I think there's probably lots to be explored there and it's not entirely clear at this point on the face of it you, you'd have to say there's an intelligence failure that the coalition forces and particularly the United States doesn't seem to have seen the speed of this coming I mean Kabul fell yesterday basically uh, on a Sunday and it happened very very fast um, the advancing insurgent forces were able to overcome districts and cities um, around Kabul and they had it ringed by by quite early in the day and they didn't meet with a lot of resistance so 
I guess I draw from that the conclusion that the Afghan people have seen these kinds of things before. Uh, they, they sense when where their interests lie. And if they think their interests uh, lie in not resisting what looks like an irresistible force, then that's what they'll do. And I think that's what's happened in this case. So, it, you know, it, it puts a lie to the suggestion that Afghan forces were reinforced enough to withstand this insurgency. This is a very sophisticated and long-standing insurgent force. They have had success and various iterations of them have had success down the generations. People change camps as they see their interests, wherever they see their interests in being, and it's clear that they've decided that it, it was going to be bloody if they resisted, and so they've not done that, and that means that the city of Kabul has fallen um, without bloodshed so far, but I find it hard to believe the assurances from the Taliban that there won't be retribution. I, I just don't think that that's true. Uh, putting your and put, putting you to analyst hat on and coming back into our political space for a moment, how are you seeing the situation in relation to the government's response to to what's happened? We know that there are people that have helped Australian forces still in Kabul. Uh, what what's the intelligence you're getting at the moment about where this particular uh, issue of helping those that are locally engaged employees out uh, is at? I mean, I think you'd have to say they've been far too slow. Um, the politics of this have been complicated on lots of levels. The American government was very angry with the Australian government for pulling its um, diplomats out when they did so early out of Kabul, relatively speaking. Now, of course, the United States has done the same thing. Uh, it's hard to have proper visibility into the course of those decisions to understand why decisions were taken. And I'm prepared to, to concede that these things are never as straightforward as they look from the outside. And I'm sure there were at least some good reasons why some of the decisions were taken um, on timing and on... on um, activeness but it does look like Australia's waited too long to try and get the people out who assisted Australians and what we now see is it's much harder there's a statement come out from the US State Department today which it purports to make on behalf of all the allied forces including Australia which is effectively pleading with those in power in Afghanistan now and it doesn't name the Taliban it carefully says those who who have power and authority in Afghanistan whoever they may be asking them to ensure safe passage out of the country for the people who uh, well, for foreign nationals and for other Afghans who want to leave. Now, the fact that they've made that statement and the tone that it's been made in suggests that that has not been negotiated in advance. So that, that also suggests that this is not something that is happening with any kind of order or arrangement. And um, that's a bit of a concern, I think, because now we see there are still people who worked for Australia who are still in Aruzgan province in Tarankot, also in Kandahar, some of them have applied for special visas. Some have been knocked back. Some have had no answer. Some hadn't applied because they believed the assurances that things were going to get better and they wanted to stay in their home country, which is understandable. But those people are now stuck. And I can't see any Australian evacuation if indeed they go ahead with that, which is what the government seems to be still suggesting even today. 
how that could get people out of out of a Ruzgana. I think it looks to me like they're more likely to be able to take people out of Kabul. But for those who can't get to Kabul, I'm not sure that anything's going to be done. And that's a very disheartening for anyone who's had anything to do with Afghanistan, any care and concern. And of course, it's it's adding to the trauma of those people who worked and served there, uh, who are watching what's happened with complete dismay. Karen, no, you've been most generous with your time, but, but, but I do need to ask one final question, and that is if people want to get your book, where can they go and look for it? Oh, well, it's a good question, Tom. It's out, it's, um, it's out of print officially now because it was published 10 years ago um, around the anniversary, the 10th anniversary of the September 11 attacks. But you okay. can, it is print on demand, so you can order it through uh, bookshops and through, um, through MUP. And you can order it, electronic versions of it still, but you can get it through retailers like Amazon as well. So it, it is possible to still get it. Um, it just might take a, a little while. Karen, look, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate your time. But it's been, and I acknowledge it's really, really busy given development. So thank you. Thanks for having me, Tom. Absolute pleasure.